1: I'm Leela Randall, and welcome to an extended MLK Day edition of Bring It On. We're celebrating 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community.
0: And hello, I'm Cornelius Wright. And in the next 90 minutes, you hear an audio recording from this morning's MLK Leadership Breakfast keynote speaker, John Keones, ABC journalist and host of ABC's award-winning What Would You Do? magazine. All in the next 90 minutes here on Bring It
1: On. But first, the keynote speaker for tonight's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day birthday celebration will be Adam Foss. Adam is a juvenile justice reformer who is a former assistant district attorney in the juvenile division of the Sulphur County District Attorney's Office in Boston, Massachusetts.
0: He will speak on the theme of and justice for all. Mr. Foss is a fierce advocate for criminal justice reform and the importance of the role of the prosecutor in ending mass incarceration.
1: As an in-demand speaker on criminal justice reform, Mr. Foss asserts that prosecutors need better training to view each case through a lens of cultural competency, integrity, compassion, and concern for the safety of the public, well-being of the victim, and the betterment of the person charged with the crime.
0: We're happy to hear have him here in the studio this evening prior to his keynote address tonight at 7 p.m. Mr. Foss, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, one of the first things I wanted to talk about was just to have you tell our listeners about the Roxbury
2: Choice Program. Uh, when I was uh, in in Roxbury Court, it was one of my first assignments as a prosecutor, I uh, you sort of go through the different sessions of the courthouse as you grow as a prosecutor and and one of the sessions that you finally get into is the trial session. They're also doing the probation surrenders in there. And a probation surrender is basically when you're on probation um, and you violate your probation, you go into the courthouse to determine what happens to you. And I remember being in there, it was on Fridays, and I would sit there and I would see this line of young men just standing and waiting for their surrender hearing to happen and some of them had committed new crimes. Most of them had violated their probation. On some technicality, they had they had smoked weed. They had missed an appointment. They had got fired from their jobs. They had not obtained the education that they were supposed to get. And as a result, we would um, incarcerate them, or you know, extend their probation, or, or continue our, our monitoring of them in the criminal justice system. And I, I remember thinking this is this doesn't seem to be a very efficient use of our time. Let's think about uh, what else we can do. And at the same time that was happening, a judge uh, at the same court and, and some other uh, colleagues at the court were having the same sort of feelings about the probation surrender session. And the judge and I got together, and um, the judge had expressed his own opinions about what we were doing as prosecutors and probation officers, and uh, we, we said to ourselves, you know, these are all young men. These are all adolescents, basically, 18- to 25-year-old men who just need uh, help as opposed to punishment for doing things that you and I take for granted. Um, and so instead of telling probationers what they were going to do on probation, we started asking them, what is it that you want to do when you go on to probation? You want to get an education, you want to get a job, you want to take care of your child support. Um, and that's why it became the Roxbury Choice Program, because it was about the choices that that they wanted to make in their lives. And we... We assisted them to do that through our powers as government officials, judicial officials. Um, It really took away that punitive uh, relationship with probation, really made it about a collaborative effort with the community, with the defendants, with the court and the resources that we have, the government and the prosecutor's office, um, and really (coughs) getting people back out into the communities and and not sending guys to jail for these technical violations of probation that were really uh, dominating the, the probation surrender hearings.
0: You you know, one of the things that uh, when you get into the street you'll hear a lot of people, they will talk about the police roles. You'll hear about the sentencing roles. Uh, you'll also hear about prison, etc. And, and in reading some of the literature on you, one thing that you mentioned that just really stood out, no one talks about the prosecutor's responsibility. And I know, I'm, I'm really not sure about this. So, the discretionary viewpoint from a from a prosecutor when they go in there is there anything that's written down that says okay they did this I have to do this they did this
2: no it's uh it's really um sort of office by office county by county state by state it's really you know we there's a we call it a criminal justice system but there's about 3100 of them in the in the country um it's uh depend depending on where you're at it's the policy of that office so Um, if I was standing in a courtroom and somebody came in because they had smoked weed and they were supposed to not smoke weed on probation, I might do one thing. Whereas as where another prosecutor of the same experience level, the same, um, uh, you know, length in the office would say you go to prison for that. Um, and so there's, there wasn't a lot of policy in terms of that sort of calculation. Um, and that's why I'm really, uh, out here talking about what our responsibility is as prosecutors to learn about the populations that we're serving.
1: So could you tell us your program, How has it been successful? And it, or, and if it has been, are now you're trying to go to other places to try to teach them how, how yours has been so successful? Uh,
2: the Roxbury Choice program uh, was successful, continues to be successful, and it's something that I continue to support. I moved from the Roxbury Court Uh, about five years ago to the Superior Court in Boston, and and now I'm out uh, on my own doing a a similar but um, broader program in terms of of national impact. Um, There are universities that are studying the effect of that, uh, that new relationship between the probation department, the judiciary, the prosecutor's office, and the defendants. But anecdotally, I can tell you that there are several of young men that are on the streets of Boston right now that have their high school diplomas or have employment, that have their college educations because of the Roxbury Choice Program, not in spite of it. And that's really what the design of the program was was made to achieve, was keeping people out of jail while keeping them on probation and supervised and getting them to those places that we they wanted to be. And so um, just anecdotally, we had young men that were uh, getting jobs at places like State Street, like the Harvard Business School, um, going to nonprofits, national nonprofits like Year Up and City Year, and, and giving back to the community as as opposed to being draws on the community, at, uh, continuing to be wrapped in the, in the criminal justice system.
0: Your peers, uh, prosecutors. I, I was really glad to hear about how a judge you actually talked to him about trying to make some change. How were your peers
2: uh, originally? How did they originally feel about the program? They were they were skeptical, but um I had a lot of support from my peers because they saw what we were trying to do. And in fact a lot of them got really interested in being in the choice program and um you know, it continues to this day despite the fact that I've been out for uh, for out of that courthouse for a long time. And that's really because, you know, there's this bad rap about prosecutors that's that's on it's in the media and it's and it's on um, you know, television and the movies that we just want to lock people up, that we have an incentive to lock people up. And it's, you know, I'll be the first to tell you that it's just not accurate. There, there are bad metrics in the system which make us do things that, that perhaps like our moral compass is telling us not to do. But most of us take this job because we want to improve public safety, because we want people to do better. And so my peers saw this as an opportunity to take that chance uh, where you have young kids who are quote-unquote high risk, uh, and work with them to achieve better outcomes. Because at the end of the day, the best part of being a prosecutor was seeing a defendant who we thought was going to end up in prison or in the cemetery succeed and thrive. And and once they started that, once they started seeing that sort of uh, become indoctrinated in, in the system, they jumped on board.
1: Well, I, I guess something that I've always thought about prosecutors is that they're they're so overwhelmed. Their caseload is so great um, that they don't really have the opportunity to actually have a conversation with the person until they actually stand in front of them and they have to, you know, explain what they have they had to do. So, I guess that's what I think about prosecutors. That, mm-hmm. You know, and people only go to them when they don't they can't afford to get an attorney. You know, themselves. Mm-hmm. So, is my assumptions have they been are they incorrect or? Please correct me right there.
2: No, so uh, when people are arrested, most of the people who are tied up in our criminal justice system are what they, we call indigent. They they cannot afford attorneys, so the government gives them one. And that public defender spends time with that person, and traditionally that, that public defender has lots of people to deal with, so they know a fraction of the information they need to know about that person to make decisions about them. But then they relay to the prosecutor who has even less information about that person, and then uh, and then. That information is related to the judge who is trying to keep the courtroom moving. And so we're really making life-altering decisions about people with fractions of information that we need to know. And and I say that about we need to know because there are lots of disciplines that have studied human behavior, studied crime and poverty and trauma and know sort of what works, what doesn't. Um, And we just don't take the time to learn that information about the people that we need to. And so prosecutors do have really high caseloads, public defenders do have really high caseloads, uh, but we spend a lot of time on cases that don't need to be there. We don't need to be spending time on, on the, the homeless man who's mentally ill who, who was, was loitering um, because he needed somewhere warm to sleep. We don't need to spend the time on the, on the person who's addicted to drugs and they're stealing. We don't need to spend the time on the young person who's selling drugs because he needs to put food on his baby's table. All of those issues are, are things that we can deal with with other agencies that that our government supports, um, whether it's it's mental health counseling or whether it's drug abuse treatment or whether it's it's workforce readiness. Um, the criminal justice system is not the place for that to be at. And so as prosecutors, public defenders, and judges, if we thought differently about our jobs and started sending those cases back out to where they belong, those caseloads come down, we can concentrate on the cases that people really want us to concentrate on, and those are the violent Uh, repeat offenders. Um,
0: I know that you mentioned that most of the, well, a lot of the the people that come through the program around 18 to 25. How about those under 18? And those under 18, is there some type of parental involvement that's also a part of the program? Uh,
2: Those who are under 18 are actually in a separate court. And, And the reason that I left the Roxbury Choice Program in the Roxbury Court was uh, all of these guys and, and young women that I was working with, actually, uh, I would look at their criminal records by the time they got to us and I'd say, oh, we we missed an opportunity with you in the juvenile court. You've gone to the juvenile court four or five times and nothing nothing worked down there because we just kept doing the same thing. So let me leave here and go down there and try to, try to implement some of these practices down there. Um, and what we called the Roxbury Choice Program, an adult court sort of became a diversion program in the juvenile court because with the juveniles, you have the opportunity really to intervene and take care of those problems like we were talking about. It wasn't about young kids who were who are organically bad. It was about young kids who had been, um, they had bad nutrition when they were in, in utero. They had bad early educa- early edu- education. They had seen trauma and domestic violence and, and drug abuse in the, ho- in the home. They went to elementary school and, and didn't know how to read. They went to middle school and they acted out because they they weren't gaining any information in school. And then they became teenagers and they started involving themselves with gangs. And each one of those steps is somewhere that we as adults, as we as stakeholders, could get in and, and do something about it that had nothing to do with punishment of the criminal justice system.
0: Well, that kind of goes back, goes to my next segment that I was going to talk to you about. And I know that you have a reading program. Yes. And uh, would you tell our, our listening
2: audience a little bit about that? So I, I don't remember when it happened, uh, I, but I was listening to to a politician a local politician give a speech about the trajectory of, of young people into the criminal justice system um, and studies that were being done about young people's literacy by the time they reached the first grade and how that correlated to trajectory in the criminal justice system. And the numbers that I heard were uh, kids in, the, in our communities, in the, in the urban neighborhoods that I worked in that were impoverished, heard 30 million less words by the time they reached the first grade than their counterparts in the suburbs. Just because they were uh, read to less, just because their parents paid less attention to them, they didn't have people sitting there talking to them, engaging with them like kids who lived in the suburbs. Uh, Another way that I heard the same statistic was that in the inner cities, uh, kids were read to, by the time they reached the first grade, kids were read to on average from the time they were zero until the first grade they were read to, on average, 24 hours. And in the suburbs, that number was 1,800 hours where someone actually sat down with a kid and read them words out of a book. Both of those statistics, however you look at it, that disparity in just hearing words and understanding what those words meant and that literacy, uh, that disparity directly correlated to trajectory into the criminal justice system. And that's really the school-to-prison pipeline that we talk about often. and. As a prosecutor, when I wanted to sort of expand our view of what can we do that doesn't involve jail at all as a prosecutor, uh, I thought to myself, well, I live in the, in the community that I prosecute in. There's an elementary school right down the street that opens at 7.30 in the morning. I don't have to be at work until 9.00. So let me go over there and just read to some kids. And that's really how it started, was just myself, uh, a woman named Priscilla Guerrero, a few other prosecutors. That uh, just started, just very organically, just going to read to children. And by the time that I left, and and Miss Guerrero still runs the program, uh, we had expanded to you know twenty prosecutors being in being in that school reading to children, uh, thousands of books a year, thousands and thousands of more words. And you know, are we fixing every problem that these kids are ha- are having? No, but we're doing our part, and we're we're setting an example for people who in the morning or taking that extra half hour to maybe go to Starbucks or the gym or to yoga, maybe think about why don't you stop by the local elementary school and read to kids for a little while because the, the impact of that was twofold. One, you're fixing this literacy problem. But two, you're giving children the opportunity to meet people like police officers, like judges, like lawyers that they are later on conditioned not to like, not to trust, and they're seeing people of color in those roles very early on so that they can they know and understand we can do that too at some point in time and the ancillary benefit was everybody had such a good feeling coming out of there It was like therapy before you go to work
1: you're a very giving person what in your background has inspired you to want to give back so much
2: the recognition that uh it's cliche to say but you know but for the grace of god go i um i was I was an orphan, I was uh, adopted by, by some wonderful folks who gave me those things despite not having a lot of resource. And uh, as a 19-year-old young man, I made a lot of really bad decisions that uh, had I been 19 years old in another zip code with different parents, I probably would have not been here, uh, likely in a, in a jail or prison somewhere and taken it to an, its extreme, maybe even in the cemetery. And the only thing that kept me from that outcome were the protective factors that I had growing up and also that shield that I had around me of having those two parents when I was making those decisions. And to me, it struck me as really unfair that so little effort and and such little differences between me and, and those kids could result in such disparate outcomes. And if each one of us just took like an hour out of our day to do something different, um, we could probably all fix this criminal justice problem together.
0: And one of the things, is, as you were talking about the, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the people going through the program that, that just kind of popped in my head, the racial parity aspect, as we know that there's always some type of racial uh, disproportionate disproportionality. Did you see any of that in this program? And if so,
2: how was it rectified? Uh, how was it rectified, and how did you deal with that the racial the racial parity actually wasn't even um, an issue because we just never we never saw white kids in court and I knew that there were white kids in Boston. I knew that they were going to the same high schools and the same colleges we We are a massive college town. I went to college in in Massachusetts, and I knew that there, lots of crime was happening on those college campuses, but we never saw those kids in court and so Why? You know why? Okay. You know why? <laughs> well,
0: because as a, from, as a prosecutor, I want to hear it from the prosecutor's view. You know,
2: viewpoint.
1: Their parents had enough money to get them attorneys; they didn't have to come through there.
2: And and even before a, even okay. before that, the police okay. weren't arresting them. Okay. The schools weren't expelling them. The administrations at the judicial board at the at the colleges or, or the high schools where they're getting in trouble were get, they would get a guidance counselor and they would get a, a a parent conference and they'd get a slap on the wrist, maybe do some community service, whereas the kids of color, because they weren't at those schools, because they weren't in those colleges, they were on the street, and they were being, they had to interface with the police a lot more than the kids who were coming to the universities there when they were going to the private high schools and the private colleges. Um, so when I when I walked into to Roxbury Court, uh, I the, my first day I was just blown away by how everybody in that courthouse was black and brown. I mean, we had, you know, you had one or two uh, white people who were severely addicted to drugs and, and had wandered across the border into that part of the county where they got arrested. And you'd had one or two college kids that were super, super drunk and did something dumb. Um, but the rest of the folks in there, and I'm talking 100 to 200 people a week, were black and brown. And how do you rectify that situation? You understand as a prosecutor. That there's nothing different between those folks and the white folks that benefit from their privilege, except the existence of that privilege. And as prosecutors, we need to take that into account when we're making our decisions. The worst thing that we can be as prosecutors is colorblind. I hear prosecutors saying it all the time, oh, I'm colorblind, I treat everybody the same. And it's like, you can't treat everybody the same because everybody wasn't brought up the same. They don't live in the same environment. They didn't have the same experiences. And we have to understand that the people who are here are here, yes, because of their failure but also because of the failure of all the other systems that they had engaged with since they were babies. I know, having four
0: children, that even in the situation where people are raised in the same environment, you deal with everyone differently. Absolutely. Fair, but different. Absolutely. One of the things that I read, consequences and decisions, as I was doing some uh, background on you, do you think there should be a class in law school specifically dealing with consequences and decisions? I know that you mentioned how a lot of your colleagues were just clueless when it came to that aspect of how they may truly be affecting someone's life mm-hmm. uh
2: and i was too don't get me wrong i i didn't i had some idea um of the gravity of the situation but um i i was unfortunate enough to have spent uh some some time in a, in a jail and i'd been to a prison before i came to law school not not on my own account but I'd, i visited one and uh it wasn't a requirement of me to be a prosecutor when I became a prosecutor to go into one, and that was the first thing that I noticed. I was just like, "How are we going to stand here on the first, day, literally the first day at work, and ask for people to go to a place that we've never been, ever? How are we going to, on our first day of work, come to a neighborhood that we haven't stepped foot in, and start making judgments about the people that would irreparably damage their life? How are we going to ask people to pay fines and fees, assuming that?" we would be able to do it not knowing anything about the economic situation that these folks have been in for multiple generations. And so when I, when I think about what we're doing, um, I, I wish law schools would do it. I, I don't see how they um, can sort of restructure themselves to teach everything that we need. And so that's why I started my program, Prosecutor Impact, to sort of get that baseline of training for new prosecutors to understand the impact of everything that we do, every decision we make, however small or large it is, is going to affect someone's life forever.
1: So, talk about it a little bit more. So, is, is you started it when, and what impact has it has, has it had? Uh,
2: it, it has yet to have impact because it's not uh, fully rolled out yet. We're okay. we're piloting in Chicago next year. Okay. Um, Chicago is a is an office that. Uh, has has been embattled for quite some time. They just uh, elected who I think is one of the greatest leaders of our time, a, a woman named Kim Fox. She's the first African-American district attorney in Chicago. Uh, she's also one of... There are less than 1% of African-American women who are in positions of power in, in district attorney's offices, and she's one of them. Uh, she's very progressive, and she wants to tackle this issue as a black woman from Chicago seeing these issues. So we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna roll out there. And the idea is to take people before they walk into that courtroom and start making these decisions to learn the things that we don't learn in law school, that we don't learn in college about um, human behavior and development, about the environmental factors that um, influence that behavior, and about interventions that are in our community that work other than, than jail or prison. The reason that I know uh, that I can forecast is, is its success is that uh, we've been doing it for a while, infor- very informally, um, by hitting the street and learning about these community-based organizations that are that are taking taking kids from the criminal justice system and really giving them what they need and not taking away what they already don't have. Um, really looking at the intersection between poverty, mental health, trauma, and the criminal justice system, and employing uh, resources to to combat a lot of that, and really dealing with the history that brought our people uh, in in grossly disproportionate numbers in the criminal justice system, and saying we just can't do this anymore. We got to think of a better way. And and the the ancillary benefit is that it costs us a lot less money than what we're doing right now.
1: Sounds like some internships that should be created in law school to help facilitate that type of um, vision.
2: Yes.
3: Yeah.
0: I agree. We've got about five minutes left, and for our listening audience who is not going to be able to make it to the Buzz Kirk Chumley this evening, what message are you going to be giving in a few minutes and uh, give them a little recap of what you're going to be talking about?
2: Sure. Um, so today we're, we're celebrating the Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, and uh, I appreciate that we take the day off and we recognize this man is a contribution um, to not only the Civil Rights Movement, but to American history. And uh, an individual at our at our conference this morning said that um, they wouldn't they wouldn't speculate as to what Dr King might be saying today. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm, I'm gonna speculate. And I'm not gonna talk about I'm not gonna talk about I am gonna I talk about a, later this not, evening that
1: you have that you have a dream uh, No. <laughs> that, that, that your two children no. are, your children are gonna okay. <laughs> and in fact
2: b- the fact before he was assassinated Dr King talked about that dream. And how ambitious he was in 63, but by 67, he realized that he needed to be a little bit more muted and talking about that dream because he realized that the progress wasn't being made. And it wasn't just because of the people who were out there um, at, the, at the Trump rallies. And it wasn't just because of the people who were out there lynching people and, and punching people at, at lunch counters. It wasn't just those people. In fact, it was a lot of the people who uh, walked hand in hand with Dr. King in the movement who and he said it he said it so well during a speech called the other america he said there are folks who are on our side who are part of the movement who are more concerned about the disgusting actions of people like bull connor and and people like george wallace and people like donald trump than they are about the equality of our races and my my talk tonight is going to be about how we can sit around and wait for another leader to come because I think there, there's, a, there's a, a disconnect between the civil rights movement of, of that time and the civil rights movement that we need to be having right now. Um, mine is focused very much on the, on the state of our mass incarceration. Uh, we've, we've found a lot of people who are very passionate and they want to change the system. They know the criminal justice system is messed up. They want to do something, and they read the books and they watch the documentaries and they post on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But when it comes to actually getting down and doing the work every single day, day in and day out, it's just not happening. And that's why the movement isn't coming along. And I really feel like we're waiting for a leader when really the people who are out here are leaders in their own right. They have they have a cell phone in their pocket, they have conversations with influential people every single day, and the conversation that needs to be had is not, oh, look at Donald Trump and look at all the crazy things he's doing. It's what can I do as an individual citizen every single day to make sure that my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my peer, my colleague is getting the equal rights that I have. And it's an uncomfortable conversation, but we need to have it because when I when I hear that, oh, it's, it's, it makes me uncomfortable to have that situation, I challenge them and I say, imagine what it is to be a black or brown boy in this country this at this point in time, a black or brown girl in this country this time, an LGBTQ youth, an immigrant, a Muslim. Think about the discomfort that these people face every single day, and compare that to your minor discomfort that you have to feel having this conversation. And if you if you care about this issue, if you really fundamentally care about this issue, and Dr. King and celebrating him, then we should be doing it every day, not just one day out of the year. We do some community service. We pat ourselves on the back. We talk about how woke we are. It's about every day having the uncomfortable conversation about reconciling the history that we have the privilege that it's given a lot of people and using that privilege not just as a shield for yourself but as a shield for the people that don't have it and a sword for those who are trying to take it away from the people that need it you know i can recall as a 14
0: year old uh, young man in 1968 uh, listening to dr king and i was thinking of this elder statesman and as i've gotten older i realized he was a young man and I think that some of our youth that are out there don't
2: wait on that elder statesman it's you. Yeah, and I you know I I'm, I'm for my for my own self thinking about how old he was when he was assassinated. He was he was 38 years old. 38 years old. I'm going to be 38 next year. And I think about the civil rights movement and and our youth these days cuz our youth are energized. You know, you saw Black Lives Matter movement, you saw you saw this movement in our country of young people and a lot of people criticize it. Um but i would encu- i would encourage them to think about yes malcolm was young yes martin was young think about the children that we don't really talk about all that often the people the the kids in birmingham who were the ones that filled the jails <clears throat> the four girls who were who whose bombing sort of put put birmingham on the map the the single mother who before rosa parks sat down on that bus and the children of SNCC, the children of the sclc all of these young people that contributed to the civil rights movement, and they're in, the, in their own way back in the day. And now young kids can do this all the time just sitting in their living rooms.
1: Okay. We're at the top of the hour, and, w- and welcome to an extended Bring It On broadcast. where are Indiana's only public affairs program do- dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM, I need to slow down, and on your radio dial and live on the web at WFHB.org.
0: We want to thank Mr. Adam Foss, tonight's keynote speaker for the 2017 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration, for, among other things, enlightening us on tonight's timely message of And Justice for All. Mr. Foss' presentation begins at 7 p.m. this evening at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater, located at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. And I'd just like to say it's truly been a pleasure. Uh, I've learned so much this evening, and uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you for having me. I hope the townspeople come down and, and we can start with mo- this movement tonight.
4: Absolutely. This is listener-supported WFHB Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville. Community radio for South Central Indiana, online at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Growing Opportunities, a social business project of the South Central Community Action Program. Growing Opportunities is an urban hydroponic farm that provides job training opportunities for low-income people with barriers to employment, especially people with disabilities. Growing Opportunities also grows produce that is sold to local eateries, supermarkets, hospitals, and schools. Information is available at 812-332-2168 or online at insccap.org.
1: Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for the program, let's hear it. Send an email directly to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Oh, Father, how we love you
3: you just help me bless him right now. Come on, let's corporately, wherever you are, just, if you can, just open your mouth and just begin to declare his praise. Come on, declare his name. Father, we approach you as humbly as we know how, your sons and daughters, your servants. In this moment of intercession, Father, please hear our prayer.
0: just heard Servant's Prayer from the CD entitled Spiritual Truth. Bishop Eddie Long presents the New Birth Total Praise Choir. William Murphy was the lead soloist on this song. Megachurch Pastor Eddie Long died Sunday morning at the age of 63 after a battle with an aggressive form of cancer, according to a statement issued by the Atlanta area New Birth Missionary Baptist Church.
1: It's really sad. I think he is going to be missed for a very, very long time. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news.
0: Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org.
1: At the top of tonight's extended show, we shared that we would air remarks from this morning's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Leadership (laughs) Breakfast Key, John Kionis, ABC News journalist and host of ABC award-winning What Would You Do News Magazine.
0: What follows are his impassioned remarks concerning his life story and a challenge he leaves with his listeners to truly make America great.
5: Good morning, Indiana University. What a pleasure, what a pleasure it is to be here. Yes, I'm John Quinones, and Dr. Margori did a great job, right? I've been called everything from quinine to quinines to quin (laughs) (laughs) Even Barbara Walters has trouble with my name at ABC. So it was very special. It's particularly special for me to be here celebrating the life and the legacy, of course, of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. You know, during my brief three-day visit here, it's become pretty clear to me that IU creates educational and cultural opportunities for growth, for empowerment, and social change so that every, every person may experience the bounty of life's abundant possibilities and in my book, what greater mission can there be? The Reverend King once said that life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? That is what today's commemoration is all about and that in many ways is what my show, What Would You Do?, is all about. It's a, it's a kind of candid camera of ethics, the show that poses the question when you witness injustice. When you witness bullying or racism or discrimination or gay bashing, anti-immigrant or anti-Muslim hatred, do you step in or do you step away? Someone gave me the greatest compliment the other day. They said, you know what John, the world would be a better place if we all thought what would you do hidden cameras and John Quinones was in the next room (laughs) watching our behavior because we would all be... On our best behavior, and we would realize the power of one. So by the way, it's also the show has made it impossible for me to go have dinner anywhere <laughs> without people asking what's gonna happen, you know. So I'm gonna to try to eat here. I was on a plane the other day and the flight kind of snuck up on the flight attendant, and she came face to face with me suddenly. She hadn't seen me. And she almost freaked out. She goes, oh my god, it's John Quinones. What's going to happen on the airplane now? (laughs) So you've been warned, we can put those hidden cameras anywhere, right? If you're sitting there and the person next to you passes out and you go have another cup of coffee, you're going to have me to talk to. (laughs) You heard about, and you've seen, we witnessed the brutal, bruising presidential campaign and election that we've just suffered through. And who knows what the next four years will bring. And the racial divisiveness that we're now seeing is so disturbing. And I think there's no better time than now for what would you do. So I'm happy to say that ABC will be bringing back the show on the air this summer again for another 13 episodes with all kinds of ethical and moral dilemmas. Yeah. On the drive here from Indianapolis um, yesterday, I was thinking I I would never have made it into broadcasting and network news. I wouldn't have this TV show. I wouldn't even be standing up here had it not been for the Civil Rights Movement and the Reverend King. You see, people who only know me from television who only know me from standing up there with Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer and Robin Roberts and George Stephanopoulos, people who only know me from television, have no idea the long, hard struggle that it took for John Quinones to make it to ABC News. I was born in poverty in the barrio on the west side of San Antonio. And you know how some people say, we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor. We knew we were poor. <laughs> well. <laughs> We had an old black-and-white television in the back of the house, and we saw how the other side lived. I spoke no English when I was six years old, and this is despite the fact that my family, the Quinones family, has been in Texas for seven generations, hundreds of years. We're more American than most Americans. Uh, But in San Antonio, where 60% of the population is Hispanic, you don't have to learn English when you're a little boy growing up in the barrio. The stores are in Spanish. The church was in Spanish. The radio station, our music, that some of the TV stations were in Spanish. So I love it today when people come up to me and say, John Quinones, you're Mexican-American. When did you cross the border? When did you come from Mexico? It's like, we were always there. We didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. (laughs) Suddenly. And suddenly, we're speaking English. The great African-American poet Maya Angelou once wrote that, we all marvel at the beauty of the butterfly, but rarely do we consider all the changes that that butterfly had to go through to attain that beauty. I'm no butterfly, but, but man, have I been through some struggles, and yes, some changes to attain this measure of success. Like the Reverend King, when I was a little boy growing up in that barrio in San Antonio, I had a dream of someday making a difference in this world, to become a journalist, to shine a beacon, a light on injustice and bigotry. It was something that I understood all too well because of what I experienced as a little boy. You know, when I was eight years old, uh, we encountered all kinds of discrimination in San Antonio. In fact, When I was eight, my cousin and Joey and I, my dad was a janitor at one of the high schools in San Antonio, and my mom used to clean houses on the rich part of town. We were so poor that as a little boy I shined shoes on Guadalupe Street in San Antonio. My cousin and I, Joey, would go and we'd go to all the cantinas, the bars in San Antonio because the drunk guys didn't realize how much they were tipping you, and we made a killing. The age of eight years old, uh, but then one night after shining shoes at around midnight, we're stumbling coming home, and, and 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 we were jumped by a rival gang. This was a tough neighborhood. There were drive-by shootings. There were drugs, violence, and um, they jumped us and they stole all my shoe shine polishes and all my rags and my little shoe shine box that I had built from scratch and all my earnings from the night, and that was the end of my shoe shining career. Uh, I spoke no English when I went to the first grade of school, as I mentioned, and I'll never forget being in that class, in Mrs. Gregory's class at Carvajal Elementary, and sitting there on the first day of school. I didn't have bilingual education. I didn't go to kindergarten or preschool. We went straight to the first grade. So the teacher didn't speak any Spanish. I didn't speak any English, and I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs on the morning, first day of class, and at 10 in the morning, the bell rings, and it's recess time. So what do the kids do? They all go out to the playground for recess. Where does little Juanito Quiñones go? I walked home. I lived, I lived two blocks from home, from school. When I got home, God, God rest her soul, my mother Maria goes, ¿Qué pasó, Juanito? what are you doing here? I said, it's over, mom. I like school. <laughs> I said, I like school, I'm Like, you know, two hours and you're done with it. I love school. I think this is gonna work out so she grabbed me by the ear dragged me back to Mrs. Gregory's class where I had to endure another six hours (laughs) it was tough you know um, they used to punish us in school for speaking Spanish the coach at our school had a paddle a wooden paddle and they had drilled extra holes in it for power and strength and they would give us three spankings on our rear end that would make us line up if we, they caught us speaking Spanish. I remember my older sister, used to, they used to call her in and say, your little brother refuses to speak English, Irma. Talk to him. She would say, Juanito, why aren't you speaking English? And She says that I would tell her, but why are they not speaking Spanish? Why do I have to make all these changes? When I was 13, my father was laid off from work as a janitor. And we did what a lot of Latino families in South Texas had to do. We joined a caravan of migrant farm workers, seven trucks that journeyed. All my mother, my two sisters and I jumped, my father jumped in the back of these trucks. And we journeyed 1,700 miles to Northport, Michigan, the cherry capital of the world. In fact, I was when I landed at Indianapolis, I was remembering that day when we came up to to pick the cherries in Michigan. We got stranded. We got uh, got separated from our caravan of trucks. And we wound up in Indianapolis. And we had no money and no food. And I remember my mother got off the truck and she knocked at a church at the pastor's door. And he came out and he gave us two loaves of bread and a gallon of green beans. And that helped us survive for the next two days as we journeyed north. Green bean sandwiches. I'll never forget that. And we picked cherries for 75 cents a bucket. And I remember teetering on the top of these ladders looking over these orchards. And it would take me two hours to fill that darn bucket with cherries for 75 cents. And then after six weeks there, we did what all migrant farm workers did. We journeyed. We followed the crops down to Toledo, Ohio, a little town called Swanton, Ohio, where we picked tomatoes for 35 cents a bushel. And man, I was a champion tomato picker. I picked 100 bushels a day. Back then, that's $35. My father would pick about 100, 120, and then my sisters contributed, and my mother. And we learned the value about you know, a family coming together right, and picking up ourselves up by our bootstraps and, 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 and surviving. And, uh, but I'll never forget being on my knees on the cold, hard ground at 6 in the morning. Uh, looking at a row of tomato plants that for a young 13-year-old boy's eyes seemed to go on for miles and miles. That's what I had to look forward to that day at 6 in the morning. And my father, Bruno, looking down at me and saying, Juanito, you want to do this for the rest of your life? Or do you want to get a college education? It was a no-brainer. I knew I didn't want to do that kind of work for the rest of my life. but, But no one believed in me. You know, when I came back to school and I would ask my teachers at Rhodes Junior High and Brackenridge High School, how do I prepare for uh, college? How do I take, you know, advanced placement classes? How do I prepare for the SAT and the ACT? You know what my own teachers would tell me? They would say, John, it's wonderful that you have this dream of someday being a television reporter. Because I want to be a reporter since I was 10 years old. I used to watch Geraldo Rivera in 2020. <laughs> the only one with a Latino last name, right? He had long hair, moustache, blue jeans, and he was covering all these great stories in Africa and Turkey and traveling the world, and he was Latino, or so I thought. It turns out he's only, (laughs) he's only half. (laughs) No, Geraldo is my hero, but I wanted to be like Geraldo. I wanted to work for 2020 someday. And when I would ask my teachers, how do I get ready for college, you know what they would say? They would say, it's wonderful, John, that you have this dream, but we think you should try wood shop. We think you should try metal shop. Or how about auto mechanics? Not that there's anything wrong with those wonderful trades. A lot of our friends and family make a good hard living doing that. But I wanted to go to college, and my own teachers, my own counselors, did what people do on that show, what would you do every Friday night? They judged me, not about the content of my character, they judged me by the color of my skin and the accent in my voice. But thank God for my mother Maria, you know, she was the one. You talk about the power of one. Maria would say to me, mijo, my son, mijo, it doesn't matter that you have to wear the same clothes to school every other day, at least we wash those clothes, right? at least they're clean, it doesn't matter that you have to take bean and tortilla tacos for lunch when all the other kids are taking their fancy bologna and white bread. (laughs) Now we know beans have more protein, right? (laughs) So we got the last laugh on that one. She would say, it doesn't matter, mijo, what matters is what's in here and what's in here in your corazón. Thank God for my mother Maria, she was the reason I kept going and pushing because I had a heavy Mexican accent and I wanted to be a broadcaster like Peter Jennings and Dan Rather, I wanted to go to television, Peraldo, right? So I I had a a really tough tough time uh, uh, speaking the language because in Spanish, for example, there is no SH sound. So I would say these are my chews, this is my church, and people would, would make fun of me. Uh, but it was during the civil rights movement and I remembered the words of the Reverend Martin Luther King who said in Times of adversity you got to have faith right and faith. What is faith? Taking that first step. It doesn't matter if you don't see the entire staircase Take that first step because tomorrow mañana There'll be another baby step and then another baby step. So I got involved in drama classes I forced myself I was really painfully shy And I would have never gotten in front of a group like this. But I forced myself because I wanted this so badly. So I got enrolled. I tried out for the role of Romeo in Romeo and Juliet for a citywide production. And maybe it's because no one else tried out for the role. (laughs) But I got it. I played Romeo. And um, the good news was that I got to kiss Juliet. Mary Lou Gomez. I'll never forget her. We had to practice kissing behind the curtain to get it right. You know. <laughs> the bad news was in, in this ridiculously macho school because it was all Mexican Americans. Um, I had to wear leotards. Just glad there were no no YouTube back then, kids, uh, <laughs> to make me uh, live on live in infamy with those leotards. But it was little those baby steps. And then along came the first hero in my life, my English teacher, Mrs. Gutierrez for the first time when everyone else had said you'll never make it she was the one who said John I love the way you write essays I love the way you tell stories have you thought about going into journalism I said of course I've been watching Geraldo all these years (laughs) she said no no I think you should try to talk to Mr. Harris who runs the school newspaper the Brackenridge Times so I did and I was hired as a reporter at the age of 14. So I've been doing this since I was 14 years old. And and within a couple of months, they named me the chief of editorials for the Brackenridge Times newspaper. So there I was, writing all these big investigative stories. (laughs) Like, why are the teachers parking in the students' parking spaces, you know? (laughs) Tonight, we go undercover and find out. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved journalism. I loved writing and telling stories. And then came the other hero in my life. And heroes don't always have to be people. Heroes can be government programs. And in my case, it was upward bound. I don't know how many upward bound trio people there. (laughs) Again, a product of the civil rights movement. The government knew, the government, the theory, Presidents Johnson and Kennedy, it was very simple. The only way out of poverty is through education. What a thought. What a thought. So they went to every school in America, in the inner cities, and they picked on 10 students who showed some promise. I don't know what they saw in me, and my grades weren't that great, but they picked me as one of the upward-bound students, and I got a chance to take extra courses on Saturdays because the government knew that these inner-city schools were doing a terrible job. So we got advanced advanced courses in math, biology, and English. Every Saturday and every summer, I would go live six weeks on a college campus. And it taught us, our families especially, in a Latino family, it's tough to let your children go to college. A father doesn't want his daughter living on a college campus. And I know that sounds silly, but even my mother was like that. I remember saying goodbye to her when I went to Southwest Texas State University, which was like 45 minutes from San Antonio. I was going to go live there for six weeks, just six weeks, and I'm in the driveway and my mother's in tears. She's like, mijo, ¿cuándo te vas? What am I going to see you again, <laughs> 45 minutes away. I said, Mom, I'll be back Saturday with some dirty laundry and uh, and I'll, I want some of those bean and tortilla tacos. okay?" And um, Upward Bound made it happen for me. I wouldn't have gone to college had it not been for Upward Bound. I got into St. Mary's University in San Antonio, and 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 then, of course, I wanted to get into broadcasting. I had three jobs when I was in school. You know, you gotta do everything you can, right, you to survive. To, to. My parents couldn't afford the tuition, so I worked in the school cafeteria. I worked in the geology department, sorting rocks. And at night, I gotta be careful how I say this, because when I say I deliver drugs, people say, of course, you're Latino. You. <laughs> A drug dealer. Now, I delivered drugs for a pharmacy, you know, prescription medicine for little old ladies and little old men who couldn't go to the drugstore to pick up their medicine. I would drive a beat up Volkswagen to take them their medicine to their homes. But at night, as I wanted to get over my, my accent, I had this little tape recorder and I, between my deliveries I would go into the men's room and I would record my voice over and over again, again, trying to get rid of this accent. And the owner of that drugstore would hear me through the men's room door. And one day he said, John, you really want to do this, huh? You want to get into broadcasting? I said, yes. I was a freshman in college. And she goes, he said, well, there's a radio station looking for interns. And you want to know why they were looking for interns in San Antonio? Because San Antonio, despite the fact that there were 60% population Hispanic, there were very few people, maybe two or three, who looked like me on television. And thank God, Reverend King, civil rights movement, there were protests in San Antonio at these radio stations by these radical Hispanic groups. It's one in particular, they call themselves the Bilingual Bicultural Coalition on the Mass Media, or the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) And the BBC picked up poster sign, uh, you know, uh, protest signs, and they went to every radio and TV station and challenged the licenses of these stations which are governed by the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, which says that the airwaves belong to the people. They don't belong to Disney or Comcast, Time Warner. They belong to the people. And if these stations weren't hiring an on-air force that reflected the faces of San Antonio, then they were going to ask them not to renew their licenses. They were going to ask the federal government not to renew their licenses and they would pick it every day. So the radio and TV stations freaked out and they started hiring anyone with a decent voice to bolster their roles and to say, we have a a Hispanic kid, look at this kid. And I was an intern hired by a country music station. (laughs) Now, I was a Chicano student, you know, I loved rock music, I loved R&B music, I loved, you know, even Mexican music, of course, but (laughs) this was a country music station. But it was an opportunity. You know, you do what you can to get the food on the door, right? That first step, even though you don't see the entire staircase. And I was hired as an intern. You want to know what my job at this radio station was at the age of 18? My first job in broadcasting at this country music station? You have to be from Texas to understand this, but the disc jockeys at this station had horses. Horses in the back of the studios that they would use in parades, and rodeos, and public appearances. My first job in broadcasting for two dollars an hour was to feed and clean up after the horses in the back of the studios at KKYX Radio. But at night, at night, I would sneak into the back studio, and I would record my voice on these reel-to-reel recorders, reading anything I could get my hands on, again, practicing my pronunciation, my enunciation. The only problem was, at that hour of the night, at midnight, there was no one there to criticize my work. All the professional disc jockeys and the announcers had gone home. The only one left at the station was the janitor, and his name was Paulo. And Pablo's English was worse than my father's. But I would drag him in there. I said, Pablo, listen to this. And he would listen. And I'd say, how does it sound? he goes, go, mas o menos, more or less. <laughs> he was my first critic. And then they let me do the, they let me do something on the air for the first time uh, at KKYX. There'd be some new medicine out, and I got to say those last four seconds of where you could find that medicine. So you want to hear the first words John Quinonez ever said on the air? All right, get ready. I got to say, now available at Walgreens. (laughs) That was, that was, I was pretty proud. I was so proud of myself. I would call my aunts and uncles, my grandmother, and my friends. You got to listen at 1.12 this afternoon. <laughs> but don't blink because you'll miss it. And then they let me do the news on Sunday nights. It was actually Monday morning. Between 1 and 4 in the morning, we'd do five, I would do five minutes of news on the hour. I think at that hour between 1 and 4, we had four listeners. My mother, my father, <laughs> and my two sisters. But I got to learn the value of, you know, that's where you make mistakes. You don't want to mess up on ABC network news out in New York. You want to mess up in a little country station in San Antonio, on the outskirts of San Antonio. And I loved it. I loved it from there. I, I got another job. And then I was getting, you know, I wanted to get into television. No one would hire me in television in Texas. Everyone had their one Hispanic reporter. It was like the quota has been met. We got one of them. We don't need another one. So everyone had one. <laughs> so I tried in Amarillo, Austin, McAllen, Texas, you know, Fort Worth, Dallas, Houston. No one would hire me. I can show you 80 letters of rejection. Never take no for an answer, young kids. Never take no for an answer. I kept pushing, man. I kept pushing. And uh, I was at an audition for another job that I didn't get. When I met a woman who had gone to Columbia University, And I told her my story, I said, I can't get a job in television. I might just go to law school, you know, the heck with journalism. And she said, John, you have such a passion for journalism, don't do that. You know, go to Columbia University. If you're gonna go back to school, I went to Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. And she said, if you want, I'll write a letter for you. And she did, and I got accepted. And then I said, great, how am I gonna pay for it? (laughs) And I went there and I knocked on every financial aid door, every financial aid door, and I begged him, and I said, look, I wanna come here. I've been accepted but I don't have the money, and I wound up getting a fellowship from NBC News to study uh, at Columbia University. So like the Beverly Hillbillies, I packed up a U-Haul truck in Houston and I made my way to New York City, and I loved it. And from there, I got my first job in television in Chicago, not far from here in Chicago. I was a local reporter, and the only reason I was hired there was because a Latino reporter joined the network, and there was a Latino slot open (laughs) once again. But while I was in Chicago, I did a story that I wanted to do for a long time, long time about uh, an issue that's a hot button issue to this very day, immigration. Even 30 years ago, I had family who'd come into this country illegally, so I convinced my news director in Chicago to let me go undercover and go into Mexico and find out what it's like for a Mexican immigrant to come and cross the border and get a job in the U.S. So I pretended. I went and I didn't dress like this, obviously. I spoke only Spanish. And my news director said, fine, if you're crazy enough to do this, we'll let you go. And I told all my friends, I'm going to do a big investigative story. I'm going to go undercover. I'm going to pose as a Mexican. (laughs) 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 To which they all said, it's not going to take a lot of acting. (laughs) No, I I, I posed as a Mexican citizen. as, As a young kid, I was 25 years old. And I went undercover in Mexico, and we went to this town where half of the working-age men had come to work in this country, and I found a coyote. I found a smuggler who for $300 sold me a fake birth certificate and a fake social security card, all captured on hidden camera at a church, on, on a church plaza. Remember, we, he gave, I gave him the money, he gave me the, the ID, and he said, okay, tonight at 7 o'clock. We'll cross here on the Rio Grande. I'll cross you into Texas. So then I got in my rental car, and I went and I told my camera crew where to hide in the bushes on the Texas side of the Rio Grande, and I said, okay, hide here, and at 7 o'clock tonight, I hope, I'll be coming across. I got back in my car and went back into Mexico. Back then, you could go back and forth easily, and I had to stash my rental car because, you know, the coyote was going to get very suspicious. This young Mexican kid is driving a Lincoln Town car from National Rental Car, and I hit the car, and I met up with the coyote. He tells me to take my clothes off. And I was worried because I was wearing a wireless mic, but so I convinced him to let me keep my T-shirt on. And sure enough, he puts me on an inner tube, and I floated across the Rio Grande to Texas, all captured on camera. And I didn't stop there, for this was a story in Chicago for a local station, so we had to make it a local Chicago angle, right? In Chicago, I got a job at a restaurant, a Greek restaurant, where the owner of this restaurant had seven Mexican workers working for him, all undocumented, and he had not paid them in 17 weeks. And every time they complained, he would say, hey guys, you get to sleep here in the basement. You get to eat all the food you want. You keep complaining, and I'll call immigration and have you deported. Which, by the way, happens today in this country. So I got a job there as a dishwasher I pretended I spoke only Spanish Uh, I didn't dress like this obviously he hired me and by day I'm washing dishes and at night I went down into the basement with the other seven Mexican workers and uh, I'll never I always keep wondering what they must have thought because by by day they see me washing dishes with them, and then I suddenly bring out a little camera and I started interviewing them about their lives and they told me how they were being held as virtual slaves In the basement of this restaurant the next day I came back this time wearing a suit speaking fluent English with a camera crew behind me and I remember we had to chase the owner of the restaurant through the parking lot (laughs) because he didn't want to talk to me but the day after it aired that story aired on CBS local news in Chicago the US government moved in they shut down the restaurant they arrested the owner and they got the Mexican workers the money they were owed, and temporary visas to remain in this country while they worked on their residency. (laughs) And I knew then that those were the kinds of stories that as a Latino I was destined to tell. You talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion, it made that station better. It makes ABC News better to have Latinos and African Americans gay reporters on their staff. Um, That story won an Emmy Award, my first Emmy Award in Chicago, and I knew that's all I wanted to do. I see journalism even today. I imagine this room being pitch dark. All right, it's the middle of the night, the electricity's out, we can't see our hands in front of our faces, and here we are stumbling around, all of us trying to get out. The journalist, he or she, is the person with a little candle with a little flashlight and they can shine it on the darkest corners of this room to illuminate injustice, to illuminate corruption, to illuminate civil rights violations, human rights violations. I think when journalism is done right, and God knows we're not doing it right too often these days, but when it is, those are the kinds of stories that we should be telling. I wound up getting my network job because of that story after swimming across the Rio Grande. Ironically, it was because Central America was burning up. Some of you are too young to remember, but back in the 80s, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Panama, Honduras, Guatemala, there were civil wars going on in those countries. Young rebels trying to overthrow dictatorships. And ABC News had a correspondent by the name of Bill Stewart. If you Google Bill Stewart, ABC News today, you'll see what happened to him. It was 1980. And he was covering, he was sent from New York to cover the war in Central America. He didn't speak a word of Spanish. He stopped at a military checkpoint. The soldiers accused him of being a communist. He can't understand what they're saying to him in Spanish. They put a gun to his head and they shoot and kill him, all captured on camera. That video made its way onto CBS News, ABC, CNN, NBC, and the U.S. government then withdrew support for the Somoza government, the dictator, Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua, and the government fell and the Sandinista, ironically, the communists took over. But I tell you this long, drawn-out story to explain that the networks, all of them, then in all their wisdom said, we should hire somebody who speaks Spanish to go to Central America and there I was with my little Emmy Award, and I was hired by Peter Jennings to cover Central America, and I did that for 10 years. He was the best. We still miss Peter. He was a great anchorman at ABC News. I think he'd be rolling over in his grave right now to see some of the stuff we don't cover on the news. But one day, I remember I was in Nicaragua, and I had a big interview set up with the president of Nicaragua, and I called New York, I was a young reporter, I was a rookie reporter, just hired by ABC News, but I had this big exclusive interview with Daniel Ortega. Daniel Ortega was the president of Nicaragua, the new Sandinista president. So I called New York, he had agreed to do an interview, and I told Peter Jennings. And Gen- Jennings was, well, wow, fine young man, we're excited. We're going to make two minutes of the evening news for your story. We look forward to having it on the air tonight. Well then, I get a call from President Ortega's office in Nicaragua canceling the interview. Now it's 4.30 in the afternoon. The news is on at 6.30. They had made a two minute hole in the newscast waiting for the piece that I promised. And now I gotta call James Bond, you know, <laughs> Peter Jennings in New York, and tell him that what I thought I was gonna deliver I wasn't going to be able to deliver, and I thought I would be yelled at, And who knows, get fired as a rookie reporter because I didn't deliver what was promised. And Peter Jennings, I'll never forget the words he gave me. Instead of yelling at me, he said on the phone from New York, I was in Nicaragua, he said, John, there'll be other times in your career when this happens, when someone promises you something and they don't deliver it. But listen to me, he said, don't worry. Don't worry so much about talking to the movers and the shakers of the world, the presidents of corporations, the presidents of countries. Don't worry, he said, about talking to the movers and the shakers. Talk to the moved and the shaken. In other words, talk to the real people in Central America. You know, talk to the... Talk to the campesinos, talk to the peasants, the real victims of war in those countries, the real victims of mudslides and earthquakes and hurricanes, As a Latino, he said, you can go into places where even I can't go, Peter Jennings said. And because you understand the culture, you speak the language, and because you look the way you do, you can bring back stories that no one else can bring back at ABC News. And I spent 10 years doing just that in Latin America. And I interviewed everyone from Fidel Castro in Cuba to Jane Goodall in Africa uh, for stories for Primetime Live 2020 and and World News Tonight. And the dream that I had... being like Geraldo came true. I wound up working for ABC News in and, and 2020. And I loved it, but it's so funny that today, the one show that people recognize me for more than anything <laughs> is What Would You Do? The show that really puts you on the spot and asks you to consider when you witness that injustice or racism or bullying or gay bashing, Do you step in or do you step away?
4: Hi, this is Jason Wilbur. I'd like to invite you to join us Saturday at 4 p.m. right here on WFHB for In Search of a Song. Every week on In Search of a Song, you get to explore the stories behind the songs through interviews, recordings, and live performances by some of your favorite musicians. You might even discover some new favorites along the way. So join us this and every Saturday at 4 p.m. for In Search of a Song, right here on WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station.
1: Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, your daily, grassroots, global, unembedded news hour, broadcasting here on WFHB, Mondays through Fridays at noon, here on 91.3 and 98.1 FM, volunteer-powered, listener-supported, community radio for South Central Indiana.
5: The Reverend King said that our lives begin to end the moment we stay silent about things that matter. That was the power of one, folks stepping up and sounding the alarm. Um, Many of the stories we do are serious, but some of them are fun. I don't know if you saw the one we did on a bicycle theft, where someone is stealing a bicycle from a park. We had a brand-new bicycle chained to a park right along a jogging path where people are running and walking their dogs and pushing their baby strollers. We had a guy stealing the bike, and we told the actors, if people see you with this hacksaw and wire cutter stealing the bike, Admit that you're stealing the bike so that they know, right? We didn't want them to think he'd lost his key. So first we did it with a white young man, about 24 years old, a polo shirt and a baseball cap, and he's got the hacksaw and the wire cutters, he's cutting the chain. And people asked him if he was stealing the bike. And he said, yeah, this bike has been here a while. I need a bike. I'm going to take this bike. When it was a white young man, people muttered something under their breath, they shook their heads. But no one called 911. And then we switch actors, as we often do on the show. And this time we had an African American thief, an actor playing the role of the thief, dressed the same way, the same age, with a hacksaw and the wire cutters. Within four seconds, people surrounded him like a posse. And not only did they call 911, what they what they should have done with the white guy, but they're taking his picture and video of him with their cell phones, saying. We got you now. Even the black actor was like, John, this is ridiculous. (laughs) The white guy got away with it. And then as a final twist, we had a very attractive young woman. Her beautiful hair blowing in the wind, short shorts, tight t-shirt with the hacksaw and the wire cutters. Men helped her steal the bike. (laughs) Time and again, they were falling over each other. She was, you know, it was this middle-aged couple on their bicycles, and the wife said to her husband, Honey, she's stealing that bike. He said, Yes, but she's a damsel in distress. She needs help. So he's pulling the bike out of the pole, and the actress is going along with it, right? We're telling her to. And she says, You're so strong. Thank you, thank you. I still wonder what the ride home with his wife must have been like. But my favorite ones are the serious ones that deal with real issues like race or homelessness. We did one where, what would you do if you're walking down the sidewalk and the person in front of you collapses? You don't know why, Could she, be, she could faint, she could have had a heart attack. And first we did it with a well-dressed businesswoman in a nice suit. In her 40s, she's walking, it's an actress, a stunt artist who knows how to fall convincingly. She falls and immediately, with our, in front of our hidden cameras, people stopped within seconds to help her. They put a coat over her. They called 911 to get an ambulance for her over and over again. And we said, wow, in Newark, New Jersey. And we had done it by the train station in Newark because at 8 in the morning when people were in a hurry to go to work or go to school, right? So now you have that added thing where you don't, not only are you trying to decide whether to help somebody who's fallen, but you're in a hurry and you don't have a lot of time. But when it was a well-dressed businesswoman, people stopped immediately and helped her. Time and again. And then we said, but wait a minute, what if we switch things up again? And instead of a well dressed businesswoman, it's a homeless man who's elderly, dirty, filthy, uh, disheveled, bearded, smelly, and he's holding a beer can. So we had an actor fit that role. He's walking along, he collapses very convincingly, 88 people go by and no one is stopping. People are stepping over him. One lady made the sign of the cross and kept walking. And we were about ready. We said, well, I guess if you're homeless, Newark isn't the place to be. And we're about ready to come out with the cameras as I always do and break the scene when suddenly we didn't see her, but we heard the tapping of a walking cane on the sidewalk. And into the frame of the hidden camera comes this beautiful African-American woman who is struggling along because she has had a stroke. And guess what? She's homeless herself. And guess what? She stops to help the man. He was white, she was black, not that that should matter. And she starts asking people going by, because she didn't have a cell phone, she starts people asking people going by, excuse me, do you have a cell phone? Can someone call 911 for this man who's on the ground? 22 more people go by. And no one is stopping. She then stumbles over and she surprised us. She 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 grabs the beer can out of the man's hand and she stumbles over the trash can and puts it in the trash can, as if to give him a little bit of dignity, thinking then maybe then people will help if they don't think he's a drunk. Guess what? Thirty more people go by, and no one is stopping. And She then looks up to the heavens, and she made a fist. And I'll never forget this, because the hidden camera was right on her face. And she was almost cursing God himself, asking God, how can you allow this to happen? She was pissed. She then stumbles over again, and we could hear this, because the actor on the ground was wearing a wireless mic, and she says to him, sir, I don't know your name, but I'm going to call you Billy. And Billy, my name is Linda Hamilton, and don't you worry, my man, I'm homeless too. And I'm going to stay here until help arrives." And finally, a woman stops and she calls 911. And ironically, when I came out and I interviewed her and I asked her why she called, she goes, well, I watch your show and I told my kids (laughs) that I promised them that if ever I witnessed something like this, I would step in. But in the excitement of after I come out and people are signing their releases and all that where the cameras are out, we lost our hero. We lost Linda Hamilton. She just walked away. The woman who had stepped in we knew her name so with that piece made its way onto what would you do a few weeks later and when it aired the following morning I got hundreds of tweets and emails and phone calls from viewers like yourselves asking who was that woman we want to help her and people started raising funds for her and they created a Facebook page for her called touched by an angel touched by Linda Hamilton So now, and they raised $8,000. So now we got to go find her to give her the money. So we spent two weeks out there in Newark, New Jersey. We went to every liquor store, every homeless shelter, the train stations with her picture from the video saying, have you seen this woman? Have you seen Linda Hamilton? And we found her. And then my producers, two weeks later, said, John, you got to come out and come to this church in Newark, New Jersey and sit on the steps and interview her. Bring your laptop, because she hasn't seen the piece, of course. She doesn't have a TV. So we sat on some church steps, Linda Hamilton and I, and I showed her the piece. She said, that's me. I said, yes, that's you. (laughs) You're a big star. Remember me? And she goes, "Eh, I think I do. You're, 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 there's a man who fell? I said, yes. So we got her uh, money in a a bank account. We got her an uh, $8,000 account. We got her a place to live, she had nowhere to live. We got her medicine that she was supposed to be taking for her heart that she wasn't taking. And the thing that made her most excited of all, we got her her own cell phone. She was like a little 12-year-old girl jumping up and down with joy. And I said, next time you see something, Linda, now you can call 911. But I'll leave you with this thought. At the end, I said to her, people are calling you a hero. People are saying you're an angel. They created this Facebook page called Touched by an Angel. Linda, are you? And she looked at me, and I'll never forget this, she goes, no way, John, no way I'm an angel or a hero. Let me tell you what happened, she said. I think, she said, God put me, God put me on that corner, on that street, on that day, because he knew you were there with your fancy, what would you do, cameras. (laughs) And he wanted to send people a message. And who better to send that message than someone who's walked in the shoes Of the homeless so I leave you with that thought today and the next time you witness some injustice you witness bullying or someone uh, being mean to the homeless or being racist and the little voice in the back of your head says do something remember the words and the actions of Linda Hamilton this woman who was homeless who had suffered a stroke and she stopped and she helped a man who was down with the power of one not because she was going to be on national television. She didn't know that. Not because she was going to get $8,000 in a place to live and medicine and her own cell phone. She did not know that. She did it. Because as my mother Maria would say, her corazón, her heart told her it was the right thing to do. Thank you for having me here today. Really, it's been a pleasure meeting all of you. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
0: We hope you enjoyed the moving testimonial from John Keones, ABC News journalist and host of ABC's award-winning What Would You Do? magazine. We wanna thank Mr. Adam Foss, tonight's keynote speaker for the 2017 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration for among other things enlightening us on tonight's timely message of and justice for all. Mr. Foss presentation begins in just a few moments at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater located at 114 East Kirkwood Avenue. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nolan. Tonight's board engineer crew consists of Jim Thrasher. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright.